This week's episode is about domestic abuse. I would like to thank Jess Hill for writing the book, See What You Made Me Do. It has taught me a lot, and I've used it in this podcast episode, and I know it will teach others. Domestic abuse should not only be considered when there is physical violence. Typically, it is when an intimate partner uses their partner's love, their secrets, shames, desires, or any personal details against them to strategize the abuse. Throughout this episode, we're going to be focusing on different sex relationships, but to be clear, domestic abuse also does happen in same-sex relationships. One in three American women experience domestic abuse. Now you're probably wondering, why do these men abuse these women? They feel they are entitled to because of societal norms. Society tells these men if they don't show off their masculinity or if they're not in control of it, they will not succeed. Two examples would be if they don't get the girl or the job. Not all domestic perpetrators need physical violence to maintain power. There are two types of domestic perpetrators that researchers have come to know. The one, the first abuser type of abuser would be the strategic abuser who knowingly manipulates and degrades his partner so he can overpower her. The second is the paranoid, emotionally dependent abuser who becomes more and more controlling over time because he's afraid his partner will leave him. They both fit into the category of coercive controllers. Now we have seen throughout history, there will be no typical male perpetrator. There is no definite categorization, but we do know there is a pattern and it is coercive control. In 1995, two doctors, John Gottman and Neil Jacobson, created the Love Lab. This was to see why some men are violent to women. They brought in 63 couples. 80% of these men, while verbally abusing their wives, their heart rates and blood pressure went up. The other 20%, who looked just as angry as the other men, their heart rates and blood pressures went down. They were divided into two types of abusers, cobras and pit bulls. The cobra is more perfectly focused and calm before they strike on their partners. They stay in complete control even when they look like they're losing it. They are generally impulsive and entitled. They are in the relationship for fulfillment and domination. They are more likely to have antisocial personality disorders or being sociopathic. They may also have difficult childhoods consisting of neglect or abuse, which could be an emotional attachment for the victim because they feel they could fix the, these problems with love over time. The other type, pit bulls, they're more generally insecure, jealous, and paranoid. They are the abusers to think if their wife that their wife is abusive and they are being uh, abused. A cobra thinks they have an excuse to hurt their partner or they just simply don't care. Pit bulls are generally harder to leave because these are the type of men to stalk or in serious cases, they murder their partners. With cobras, if a partner were to leave their abuser, 
without reporting the abuse, the copra could generally just move on to the next victim, which could be the next girlfriend or wife. In summarization, pipples are abusers whose anger builds slowly and they explode. Cobras are in control when their, violent, when their violence is frantic. Pipples increase in heartbeat and anger. Meanwhile, cobras are calm. However, we don't want to label these abusers. Each relationship and partner is different. And as I said before, the main pattern of behavior is coercive control. One in five females will attempt suicide because of domestic abuse. They go through different stages of domestic abuse. And each stage we will discuss of how the abuser keeps and gets control of their partner. These abusers are regular people and they're trying to exert power and control. Usually the abuser is not aware of the, that they are going through these stages, but there are abusers who actually strategize their way of control. Examples of control would be isolating their partner from families and friends, which leads uh, me to the first stage and the second stage. The establishment of love and trust is the first stage. This is when the man, he feels that he is in love. Now, it probably is true, but it's not the same love as a non-abusive partner would have. He loves the desire. He loves that his partner is devoted to him and keeping him happy only. Survivors say that some abusers, they rush intimacy and they call it love bombing. They're swept off their feet. And in some cases, the abuser will take them to another place where they are not able to connect with their families and friends as much as they want to. And literally, they are isolated, which is the second stage. This is when the abuser erases all sources of support and silence voices that question his behavior. The third stage is the takeover of perception. These victims will feel shameful because the abuser tells them if they wouldn't do this, they wouldn't do that. After feeling so shameful for so long, the victims feel worthless. The abuser will continue to take the victim more and more away from their old reality. And this may cause the victim to become absolutely loyal and they will resist any efforts to question the relationship and they will draw away from others who will question it. They will make excuses for their abuser's aggression or manip manipulation and they may also believe false motives. The fourth stage is inducing exhaustion. The abuser could use, could use sleep deprivation, drugs and alcohol, or not sticking to routines to cause his victim to feel as though she is not in her own reality. She is in a fantasy or his fantasy. They may gaslight their partners, which is when they deny or fabricate situations that make their partner doubt their own memory. The fifth stage is trivial demands. Examples of this would be not to wear so much makeup, don't wear less revealing clothing, 
And yes, you're probably thinking, well, that's maybe less revealing clothing isn't a isn't a hard demand. And sometimes it's not. But in some cases, it could mean that a tank top is too revealing. And that's just a form of control and power. The sixth stage is leaving no escape for their partners. They will constantly surveil their partner's whereabouts with texts or pictures. The abusers will try and control their partner's right to live. Typically, this could be through physical violence. Strangulation is a common physical violent way for the abuser to show their victim that their life is in their hands. American police are called to a domestic incident every 40 seconds. So say this man just strangled his wife. If he answers the door, and if the police officer sees scratches and bite marks, he may think that the wife just abused the husband. Now, this is an easy way for the victim to feel shut down or that she has no hope of leaving. The seventh stage is rewarding. The abusers will profess their love and show kindness just like how they did in the first stage. This gives the victims, of course, false hope that the abuse will stop and they're almost there. Throughout all these stages, there will be threats. Now, these could be little or very large threats. Um, It could be, in extreme cases, threats over the partner's life, their family's life, or their pets. Every day in the United States, four women are killed by a man who they have been intimate with. Some abusers may even threaten to harm or kill themselves. Another throughout the stages common tactic is degradation. The abuser will degrade the victim as much as they want to keep control. One of the most powerful ways is through sex. Survivors will report that they were made to perform sexual acts that were humiliating, degrading, or painful. Across America, 12 million people are raped, physically assaulted, or stalked by an intimate partner every year. If the abuser wants to break their partner, who may have children, they could make their victim neglect their children or make them punish their children so that way the children does not go at hands of the abuser. Mothers who are being abused commonly will risk their lives to defend their children, but for those who are so defeated, they may not defend the abuse or they may punish the child for actually trying to defend themselves. Now, many people ask, why don't these victims just leave? It may be hard for you to go back, but if you have a relationship or had a relationship that you kept going back or forgiving that someone, or maybe you just miss them, that is what these victims hold on to. That is what these victims do. Survivors will hold on to the first stage of love and care and throughout the whole entire relationship. Common rationalizations that survivors use, uh, these are, these are quotes that, um, author Jess Hill used in her book. One of them was, I can fix him. 
The abusers, they need a strong partner to get better. The abuser most likely will say that they'll get help or whatever it does or whatever they'll do to get better. Another quote is, it's not really him. If he wasn't so blank, he wouldn't hit me. Problems might be drugs, alcohol, unemployment, or mental illness. The victim is quick to think that once the problem is fixed, the abuse will go away. It's easier to move on. Let's just get back to normal, even if there are physical marks. It's partly my fault. These victims will be more passive, agreeable, or sensitive. I have nowhere to go. And in many cases, this is true. They have no money, shelter, resources, or in some cases, they just don't want to feel lonely. Another excuse is we're married. These victims will go through abuse because they have a fear of being rejected by their families or their religion, etc. For someone to leave the abusive relationship, they must recognize that they are being abused. Now, one of the biggest reasons why women or some women don't leave the relationship is society tells women that they should conceal their pain or discomfort, especially during sex. Often, survivors don't think of themselves in while they're in the abusive relationship uh, that they're being abused. They think it's a tough relationship that it, it's going to get better. They may find outlets such as alcohol, drugs, they may develop eating disorders, they may self-harm, or they might get an addiction to gambling. Now, in the courts, there is a stereotypical victim. This victim is a middle-aged, working, white woman who is a good mother and a wife who has done everything she can to protect her children by the criminal justice system. Victims who are presumed as difficult are victims who are addicted to drugs, they defend themselves or their children with violence, or they exhibit trauma. And this is one of the twisted, most twisted things, is that some judicial officers discriminate against women who are strong and independent because the stereotype of a victim is vulnerable or helpless. If this is the only true victim, it will make it 10 times harder for someone who does not fit that prototype or stereotype to come forward. Some victims use a maneuver called double think which is to accept contrary opinions or beliefs at the same time. This is when a victim needs to get inside of her abuser's mind to be one step ahead of the game. She will see the world as, as he does because she wants to see what makes him angry, what makes him calm. It's basically a method of survival. The best thing for friends and families to do in situations like this is that they need to wait for the victims to say that they are in, abu in an abusive relationship and to be there and have no judgment. Let's talk about the effects of domestic abuse on children. 
Children who grow up in violent homes, they grow to be masters of having senses to future violence and danger. They know the signs by facial expressions, voice, body language. They signal These are signals of anger, sexual arousal, or intoxication. When children experience domestic abuse, they are more likely to be physically or sexually assaulted themselves. When a domestic abuse is given uh, coverage or news coverage, there are very few reports of children or of the children's well-being. They get little mentions from journalists because they, the journalists think that they do not have the skills or they are too traumatized to sit and talk about their story. Children who are interviewed by court psychologists or attorneys, their words are twisted sometimes and or dismissed as an unreliable witness. Suicide rates among teens have increased because of their stories not being heard. Now, as infants, parent, new parents often see this as comfort that their child will not remember or they will not be able to recall violence or abuse. As they grow up, children who were raised with amid domestic, domestic abuse and violence, they exhibit the same hypervigilance as veterans exposed to combat. It gets very exhausting for these children to be in high alert. It may cause flashbacks for children throughout wherever they are, school, home, grandmas and grandpas, aftercare or daycare facilities, anywhere. Boys who see their abusive fathers abuse their mothers are more likely to adopt that behavior. Daughters who see their mothers as victims will internalize that narrative. Many children and teens will turn to drugs to be away from the abuse or to not be able to recall. Many children develop PTSD, which causes hypervigilance, being angered easily, irritability. They become detached from most people. They distrust a lot of people. They feel helpless, or it may cause some to have suicidal thoughts. Adults who live in homes with domestic or who lived in homes with domestic abuse are more likely to be in relationships with abuse. All of this shows that we need to take a further look at how domestic abuse affects children. A cycle keeps going if a boy sees his father abusing a woman and it just keeps going and going so if we eliminate the toxic masculinity if we eliminate the abuse more men will be less likely to abuse women and it will be less likely for a woman to feel as a victim or to be helpless And we need to stop the stigma that this is something that happens to only a couple people. This happens way more than it should. One of three women experienced domestic abuse. That's, that's a lot of women. 
that's a lot of victims. Sometimes it's not women. Sometimes it's men. We don't talk about that enough. Men are abused by women also. We don't talk about enough that what happens in this house stays in this house needs to be disregarded from any household. The amount of emotional damage that causes a child to when they are adults is mind-blowing. I can tell you personally. When you hear stories, sometimes you do have to take a break and be thankful for the relationships you have, the life you have, because it could be totally opposite and you're stuck in a relationship that is toxic or abusive and you may not have a way out or you may not want to get out because you may not know that it is abusive to those people, to the victims who maybe sometimes their relationship is a little abusive, but it's not always take a look at your relationship. Take a look at your partner and yourself. Not all relationships are abusive, but you definitely should take should take advice if they're if you are even questioning it yourself. If you are someone who is listening to this episode and is in a domestic abusive relationship, please get help, whether that be with someone you love or a resource like a shelter or any or maybe a lawyer or attorney to divorce your partner or something like that. Just find a way. I can't say it might be brighter on the other side because many survivors have a harder time after they leave than when they are in the relationship. Some survivors rather be physically assaulted than be put through the psychological abuse. As much as that may be uh, taboo to hear, it definitely does happen. So thank you for listening. This is the discussion that I've always wanted to have because it means so much to me and I definitely want to have more. Um, contact me if you would like to talk about a, a certain situation or your relationship. I'm all ears. So thank you and please listen to other episodes. Actually, we are not done. It is only fitting for me to do Song of the Week of someone who has been a survivor of domestic abuse, and that is Christina Aguilera and Tina Turner. Now, Christina Aguilera's story is similar to mine. She would have to escape in the middle of the night with her mother and her sister, go all the way across country to her grandparents. Now, thankfully, my grandparents were in the same city, but she, throughout her entire career, she has sang freely and powerfully about domestic violence and the abuse that her mother went through. And so her song, I'm Okay, has gotten me through some tough times. I've been listening to that since I was in fifth or fourth grade because it felt, it felt that I was not alone. And when you're a child in that type of world, you feel very alone. You feel your world is dark and gloomy and there's no way out. But there is a light, Many, maybe not a light for some survivors, sadly. But we always have to look on the brighter side because if we don't, we will fall into that darkness and there may be no way out. Now, Tina Turner, she has been a victim of domestic abuse 
throughout her whole entire marriage with Ike Turner. It was, you know, the movie What's Love Got to Do About It. For me, it's hard to watch because some of it is too close to home. But she definitely showed that her marriage was very violent, very scary. And so it probably has given others the courage to divorce or leave their husbands because that's exactly what she did. And she's living a happier life with her new husband, you know. So thank you, Tina, for giving others a voice and giving other and letting others know that they are not alone. Before we go, the hotline for people who are in abusive relationships as we speak is 1-800-799-7233.